Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. I have taught and worked in schools across metropolitan and regional Australia, and I am dedicated to supporting big-hearted educators to prioritise their wellbeing and take courageous action despite the everyday pressures of school life. Because I want educators to know, you don't have to sacrifice your health, relationships, and happiness to be a great teacher. Together, we are going to learn the lessons to help us teach well and be well. Let the learning begin. Hello and welcome to the School of Wellbeing Best of 2023 series. Today, I have the pleasure of sharing my thought-provoking conversation with Dean Kilby about the importance of taking greater responsibility for our health and wellbeing. I hope you enjoy my chat with Dean Kilby. Dean, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thanks for having me. Today, we're going to be talking about the power of taking responsibility for our own wellbeing. Why do you think this is such an important topic to discuss? Well, it's the only way that people can have any real power around an area of life that they may not have had previously any power. So if someone's dealing with some health-related issues and they lack power in that area, then there's always something going on that they can't see, right? So taking responsibility means doing whatever it takes to distinguish what's hidden from their view such that they can then take appropriate actions down that particular path and with different actions, obviously, you can expect different results. You know, taking responsibility is bloody uncomfortable and <laughs> no one wants to do that. So, you know, it's, it's a real challenge. And, you know, I think what there is to appreciate is that being a victim, avoiding being responsible is kind of built into the current condition of what it is to be human. And so being able to distinguish that condition without taking it personally, there's nothing wrong with you as an individual. It's just built into the current condition of humanity. It's not even to say that it's not transformable. Absolutely it is. But it's only when you can distinguish it that you can take responsibility for that condition and then you're not given by that condition. You can actually generate your way of being such that you have a say in the matter in which your life goes at the effect of circumstances, thoughts and feelings, your past, all of that. So taking responsibility, yes, deeply uncomfortable, even just saying the words like, oh, that means I have to do something. What does it mean to you? Well, what it means to me automatically, my default experience, viewpoint as a human being is always something immediately in the world of fault and blame. It's like a pendulum that swings from it's my fault and I'm to blame. And then I'm left with this experience of guilt and disempowered and I'm embarrassed and I'm made small in some way, shape or form in my being. And then the pendulum can swing to the other direction where it's their fault and they're to blame. So we're pointing the finger either here or there. And, you know, when someone else's blame and it's their fault, then you know, we're left with the experience of resentment, bitterness, and anger. And, you know, it's easy to throw our hands up in the air. Either way. And so the pendulum's always swinging one way or the other. And I think it's important to distinguish that because that's not necessarily what 
empowers us as human beings when we are to take responsibility. I mean, the whole phenomenon of being responsible and taking responsibility is not one of fault and blame. That's past-based. So that's all about what was, and that's all about assigning cause. But every time we assign cause, then we lack power here to impact the future. So what responsibility is not is fault and blame. By the way, there's no such thing as fault and blame. You can't point to a fault or a blame. Linguistic constructs that we bring to whatever's happening that that screws us over. And maybe there's another view, another world of this word responsibility where it leaves you with a say in the matter of your own life. And ultimately, that's what really makes the difference is where we experience having 100% of the say. Then we have a say in the next actions. And, you know, so I think it's more important than distinguishing what or providing a more or less accurate description of what responsibility is would make the biggest difference is for people to start investigating, exploring, inquiring into, well, maybe what isn't it? And what have we as individuals and groups, societies, organizations, et cetera, devolved responsibility to that has ultimately left us at the effect of our own creation, really? Yeah. So what I'm hearing from you, Dean, is we can get confused between fault and blame and then looking inwards, looking outwards, instead of thinking, okay, this is the reality in this moment regardless of how I got here, in this moment, I can take responsibility for my next choice. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not even confusion. Confusion is, and of itself, a form of avoiding responsibility. And you see it all the time. I'm I'm just so confused. It's, oh, didums. Now you're a victim to the mass of information. Because when you're confused, you don't have to do anything. It's when you're clear, you've got to act. And so you know, this whole state of confusion is an avoidance strategy. Now, that's not to victimize or place, again, further blame on people who do at times find themselves confused, of course, but it's just another way of being and it's an inauthentic way of being. Why? Because does being confused give you any real power to impact anything in life? And why do we do it? Well, we get some kind of payoff from it. We don't then have to be responsible for performing and producing the results that maybe might be expected of us, maybe might be demanded of even from ourselves. But being confused is just another strategy. Yes, that is so true. I can't tell you the amount of times I or the people I work with, I just need clarity. So they're waking. So they're waiting for this moment of clarity and then I will take action. But this moment of clarity may never come. I mean, it really does. And anytime anyone's needing to make a decision, you know, and when you make a decision, you literally commit to whatever you've just decided. So it's a hundred percent commitment and not by not necessarily by an empowering creation or creative process. It's you make a decision by cutting off or killing off all the alternatives. You know, the root Latin word decidere, which means to murder off all alternatives. So this word decide comes from a family of words that end in C-I-D-E, homicide, pesticide, suicide. You know, it's all to kill off something. So unfortunately, when we make a decision and, and you've got to make decisions in life, but there are these 
inauthentic decisions that just kind of the brain generates and we get trapped in the righteousness of a point of view. I am this way. They are that way. It is possible. It's not possible. I can do this. I can't do this. And we trap ourselves. So there's worlds upon worlds to distinguish. But this is when, when you start down that rabbit hole, you've got to generate a way of being a maturity of looking at this that lends itself to the folly of it all. I mean, you can't go, oh, I'm such a terrible person. I need to be responsible and I'm not responsible and then beat yourself up. I mean, that too is not empowering. So you've got to figure out how to inquire into this process of distinguishing the constraining limitations on your expression in life and disempowering framework of your experiences and do so in a way that kind of leaves you freed up, not further burdened by anything. That idea of being freed up from all of this internal narrative and story that is literally stopping us from taking that action that we deeply desire to take to get the results that we really, really want. You know, there's one thing and there's a lot of experts and books and workshops on getting clear on what you really, really want. People know what they want. I mean, they're just terrified to bloody well say it. I mean, I asked my daughter what she wants. She just, I can't stop her. It's like I have to tell her to shut up enough already. It's like you ask an adult what they want. Uh, I'm not sure. I don't really want that much. And they're just terrified to express what it is that they really, really want. And there's all this past failure, disappointment, upset that's they're constraining their view of the future and now we limit ourselves. We can't even make decisions on the spot. We don't trust ourselves. It's like I made a decision once upon a time and it didn't work out the way that I wanted, so now I've got to be super cautious and now I have to think about things really hard and I've got to interview everyone in my life. What do you think? Should I, shouldn't I? And then you're back and forth on the end of the diving board, unwilling to jump, even with regards to your own health. It's like, oh, should I, shouldn't I take actions towards improving my health? What if something bad happens? When you're 150 kilograms, you spend your day eating pizza and drinking sugary drinks, and you're dealing with all the symptoms of metabolic syndrome, and the doctor's even looking at you in the whites of the eye saying, you need to change. And you're like, yeah, but I've got to figure out which diet is best for me because I've tried things in the past and they, you know, they didn't work for me. No, you've got to grow up. So there's a certain level of maturity that's required to actually be responsible. You can't, can't revert back into that teenage way of being, right? There's a, a design to the teenage way of being, which is very juvenile and high risk, very high risk. Well, you've got very limited past to inform your next actions as when you're that young. So, you know, and you want to take those risks, when you're young and you don't want the constraint of the frontal cortex and consequences constraining you, you, you want to be a risk taker because you want to be able to push the limits and see what's possible and what you're capable of when you're younger. If you try and do that when you're older, it's possible, but it's just a hell of a lot harder. So there's a purpose to the ways of being and acting of that juvenile state and teenagehood. And by the way, during those years, you have no idea who you are. That's the context of being a teenager is just trying to fit in and belong. You know, you've got no freaking clue who you are. You're just trying to make it with this group and fit into that group and please that person. And 
you know, and then at some point in your twenties, you go, yes, I know who I am. And then by your late twenties, you're like, I don't know who I am. And then you're reading all the self-help books and stuff. And then it's like, I know what'll fix it. I just need to find a partner and get married. And, and then you do that. And it's like, that wasn't it. It's all sounding very familiar that we go through these stages. There's also a design to why the teenage years end. Now it's in, there's an extended adolescence, unfortunately, because for a number of reasons. I mean, the, the way in which we parent, the way the education system set up, the way we feed our children and there's this overconsumption of sugar and underconsumption of good quality protein. And, you know, that has an impact on the way that the brain develops as well and how, you know, the frontal cortex develops and then kids grow up inconsequential, like no appreciation of consequences for their actions. So that adolescence extends well into the 20s these days. Well, that's what we're noticing more and more when I'm working in universities and talking with lecturers, just how much more parental engagement they've had, where in years gone by, they didn't hear from a parent. Now parents are calling to ask about an assignment or about a change to the timetable and those kinds of things. And I love that what you're highlighting is that we have a responsibility to be the adult, to do the thing that we don't really want to do. Just like when we're parenting encouraging our children to do the thing that they don't want to do because we know that it's good for them. And this is the point that we need to get to as adults to do the thing that we don't feel like doing, knowing that it's got benefits at the other side. Yeah, there's got to be a greater context, one greater than your own thoughts and feelings. Human beings are designed to be in the world. So out here, not just stuck in here. And so, you know, in here, there's just thoughts and memories, mental states, emotional states, body sensations. I think that's about it, right? So for a human being, there's nothing more going on than those four phenomena, thoughts and feelings, mental states, emotional states, and body sensations. And we become obsessed with all of that. And there's this context of... It's important to be happy. It's important to feel safe. And yeah, you got to, there's got to be a, a safe environment. But when there's this obsession for comfort, then no one's willing to do what is actually required because most of the time it's bloody uncomfortable. And I mean, I'm a scientist, so I come from a, you know, sort of biochemistry, biotechnology, cell biology background. And so I come from that world. But in terms of the longevity literature, what looks to be consistent amongst most of the studies is this ability, you know, we use the word resilience, et cetera, but being able to weather the storm, being able to be uncomfortable periodically for extended periods of time, uncomfortably cold, uncomfortably hot, uncomfortably stressed, uncomfortably in relationship with people. I mean, how do you even discover what's required and grow as a human being if you don't allow yourself to be comfortable long enough for an adaptation to happen, flash in and out of states of uncomfortability? I mean, even, you know, I'm sitting here in this chair and right before we were talking, I thought, bloody hell, this chair's uncomfortable, right? And the ergonomics of our furniture is such that we just end up lazy and I've traveled to Japan a couple of times in the past few months and I noticed my Japanese colleagues and business partners just sit upright all the time for long meetings and they just don't get tired and fatigued. 
I'm like this for 10 minutes and I'm already feeling like I need to sit back into an ergonomically designed chair and relax a little bit, you know? And then I started thinking, wow, and you look at these, the meetings of United Nations, et cetera, and there are certain cultures, they just sit upright because they've been doing it for so long, their whole life. That's just, you know, they're trained and they've got the strength and the stamina and those muscles. We don't do that. We don't train ourselves for long enough periods of being uncomfortable for our brains, our nervous systems, and our view of what isn't, isn't possible and our ability to weather the storm and just be with the uncomfortability of it for long enough. So we never adapt. And this rings true when it comes to the wellbeing space where so many people start things. It gets uncomfortable and then they stop. And then they go to start things again. And then it's uncomfortable and then we stop. And learning that ability to move through resistance, to be with resistance so we can stretch our nervous system to be in this new state is life-changing and yet so uncomfortable. Struggling is not a problem. In fact, struggle is probably necessary, right, for our own evolution and, and growth and adaptation. And it's like, you know, the, the caterpillar and becoming a butterfly somehow, I mean, it's, I just, as a biologist, I find it fascinating, it just becomes a soup in the chrysalis. It's like, the heck? I mean, even a molecular analysis of the caterpillar is pretty, if it's obvious that it could become a butterfly. But anyway, somehow it does and you get the formation of these imaginal cells and then they kind of win out over the cells that are trying to kill them. And then a butterfly forms. It's, it's extraordinary. And it was documented, I think it was a journalist who found a butterfly emerging from the cocoon and it was really struggling and he thought he'd help out, right? And tore the, the cocoon open a little bit to, so it's easier for the butterfly to, to get out. And then the butterfly emerged easier, but it had deformed wings. So it turns out that the struggle out of it helps to squeeze the fluid out of the wings and allows them to form properly such that the butterfly can fly. So that struggle in life is important. And we don't like struggle. We don't like to see other people struggling. So we're always trying to help out and be the helper and, you know, thinking that that's what looks good. And, but then there's this resistance to struggle and effort. And, you know, the, I, I read a book once upon a time, the, Danish way of parenting. I love that. I love that they kids during their development, they get acknowledged and rewarded on effort, not on outcomes, you know? So I don't know. I think how you shift this at the level of society, I don't know. I work with individuals. We can shift it at the level of individual, but the way that we go about it is by design, human beings are, like I said earlier, designed to be out here in the world. So when we talk about well-being, like the fulfillment of the possibility of being well, well, if human beings are designed to be out here and not just in here, because where life happens is out here in the world of performance, action, inaction, it's all the universe responds to. One's concern, not like what you're worried about, but where your attention is at, one's concern would be on other people's well-being. Now, how can you impact another people's well-being if you're overweight, you're inflamed, you're tired, you're constrained by joint pain, you're not looking after yourself? I mean, what are you doing? Telling your kids to eat their vegetables whilst drinking Coca-Cola at the dinner table? Grow up. Oh, I didn't understand. Well, you've got a body. You've got to learn how to take care of that thing. 
You know, it's not like a car these days where no one has to learn anything about the mechanics of the car. You just take it to the dealership or the mechanic, whatever, they sort it out if you live in the cities, right? If you live in the countries, maybe it's a little bit different. But if you've got the opportunity and the privilege of driving that vehicle, then you've got to learn what it takes to manage it, maintain it, look after it, not this consumer mentality where you can just use things up and throw them out and replace it. Maybe in a very small percentage of patients that's possible for you know a kidney transplant or heart transplant etc but not really you know and your your body is all that you've got this skin bag is all that you've got to experience life and and perform and impact the world and and we unfortunately don't look after it and then expect the younger generation to look after themselves well they're looking at us yes that is such a powerful point to think about that we are role modeling what it is to be a human being. And is that being well or unwell? What are we actually role modeling? And that is one of my deepest concerns that as adults, we're role modeling ill health, survival, pressure, urgency, not enoughness, and always feeling like we're behind. And then you think about that fog of confusion, and it is holding us back. It is holding us back from feeling that empowerment and personal power of this body, this one body that I have, has the potential to take me where I want to go and where I want to go and what my potential is. I actually don't know because I haven't stayed in the game long enough to see what happens on the other side. So we we stay in situations that are not workable. They're not inspiring. They clearly aren't going to fulfill on what you really want for yourself and your life, but at least we know we can survive them. And so the way that the brain, your central nervous system is designed, it's only designed to survive that next moment. I mean, that's why we argue with people. It's like, you know, most of the time we even forget why we're arguing, but we know we've got to win, right? You keep going, you know, you know intelligently that it's not going to end well, that there's going to be some mess to clean up and it doesn't stop you. It's like you just got to keep going. So the brain only ever wants to survive that next moment. All it's got to paint a picture of that next moment is the past. So, you know, people stay in unworkable relationships, unfulfilling job situations all of that sort of stuff, because at least they know they can survive it. And if you were to take a different action, you run the risk of getting it wrong, of failing again, whatever you failed in the past, you survive. What's the big deal? Fail again. But it's devastating for people. What's even really devastating for people is how they look in the eyes of others. You'll know, oh my God, like your health, your well-being, your future, is on the line, like your liver is on the line and you'll be out at dinner and someone will offer you some garlic bread and a glass of wine and you know you shouldn't have it, you do it. You consume the food and the beverage. Why? Because you don't want to run the risk of looking bad in front of all these other people. And here's the stupid thing. Everyone else is doing the same thing in their own head. It's like condition of insanity, total insanity. You know, I had one client, she was arguing, she was at work and arguing that 
someone was, it was someone, a work colleague's birthday and they had a cake and they were handing pieces of cake out to everyone. She refused. She said, no, thank you. And she was there participating in the celebration. So it's not, not a problem. But then she was offered two more times the cake. And then the birthday woman herself comes up and says, please, it's my birthday. You've got to have some cake. And this woman just stood for herself and said, listen, I've been addicted to sugar for the past 30 years. I'm making a real change in my life, breaking free from that. Don't make me eat the bloody cake. I've already said three times, no. And unfortunately, that's what it took. But, you know, it's uncomfortable for everyone to stand for what's truly possible. But I've got to tell you, her experience in the latter moments of that day, the next day were empowering. Why? Because she honoured her freaking word to herself. So now she can start experiencing being good for her own word. And when people experience that they can trust themselves again, I mean, there's nothing more empowering because the more you honor your promises and agreements over time, no matter how small they might be, the more power you give to your word and you give more and more power and significance to your word and less and less power and significance to your thoughts and feelings that, you know, that's what takes you off track and stops you from filling on your promises. So if you give more power to your word, then you can give your word to great things and there's a greater opportunity set then for your vision, for what you're committed to, to be realized in the world. And accomplishment builds confidence over time. Now, had she had eaten the cake, guess who she would have woken up as the next day? A smaller human being. And integrity is really, really simple. The, the more you honor your promises and agreements, the bigger you become as a human being in the way of being, not in physicality. You know, every time you dishonor your promises and agreements, you become a smaller human being for yourself. And then you shrink. And then people say stupid stuff like, I only make promises I know how to keep. Well, that's a pretty bloody small life then. I make promises all the time that I don't know how to keep. And then I give it everything to figuring out how the heck to keep it at the risk of much embarrassment. So what? This is so powerful. And it reminds me of a time a few years ago when I'd finally realized that alcohol just doesn't really work for me, just doesn't work for me. It doesn't matter how much I have. I will wake up at two o'clock. I'll be dry. I won't sleep well. I'll be restless. I'll be cranky in the morning looking for fatty foods. Does not matter how much I have. And as I was understanding this about myself, finally joining the dots after a good decade, I finally joined the dots. I remember going along to a dinner. And this was a dinner that would go along regularly with other couples, would have pizza and drinks, and it was just what we did. And I remember as we were going in, giving myself a pep talk, like tonight, you're not going to have the wine because you know what happens every other time it happens, you're going to be tired and cranky the next day. Like just tonight, just try not having the wine, just experiment. And I remember getting there and I was feeling really confident going in. I was like, yep, definitely just going to have soda water and a bit of fresh lime. That's what I'm going to do. Anyway, the first time someone asked, oh, Meg, do you like a drink? I'm like, no, 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 I'm fine. I was like, oh, whew, got through that. And then next time someone asked, like, no, no, I'm fine. And then the questions start coming and then we're starting to talk about it. And then the final time someone asked, me, like, oh, Meg, would you like? I said, yes. And so I remember that feeling. I can feel it in my body as I'm telling this story of sitting down at the dinner with the wine that I told myself I would not have and feeling that disappointment in self. But then also that compassion of, okay, this is new and next week when I come back again, I'm going to try again and try again 
until eventually I got to the spot where no one would ask because no one would think that I was going to have one. It just became the new normal. But it took so much practice from the conversation we've talked about earlier is staying with that discomfort because I could have easily thought, oh, well, I just can't do it. When I'm with these people, I'll just have to drink and give away my power. But over time, I got to a place where I can be with these people and I don't have to drink. And there was something really powerful in, it's like when you give your word, who's giving you that word? Like you started to develop some clarity around, okay, well, hang on a minute, who am I? Put it this way, my, my daughter one time, she's 10 and a half now when she was maybe eight, something like that. She comes to me, I'm sitting on the couch in the lounge room. She says, dad, I'm hungry. And I said, okay, sweetheart, come over here. Let's sort your hunger out. And she was standing there a little bit confused because I was on the couch in the living room where you sort your hunger out is in the kitchen. So I said, just come here. And she sits on my lap and said, just close your eyes and just tell me, where do you experience this hunger? Just show me on your body, where do you experience it? And she rubbed her tummy and I said, okay, and what do you tell yourself about that experience? And she said, I want to eat. I said, yeah, absolutely. That's what I tell myself when I experience that too. And what are you experiencing now? She said, I'm confused. And I said, where do you experience the confusion? And she gestured to her face. And I said, what do you tell yourself about that experience? And she said, I don't know what you're doing, Dad. I said, yeah, I know. It's crazy, right? I said, what are you experiencing now? She said, I'm bored. I said, where do you experience the boredom? She just jumps up off my lap and she said, can I just go play now? And, and I said, sure, but answer me one question. You know, what happened to the hunger? And she said, I'm not hungry. And she just went and played. And I said, great, dinner will be ready in an hour. But the moment that someone experiences being hungry, you know, are you hungry? This is how mothers, parents express their love to their kids. You know, are you hungry? Let me feed you. We get older not having grown up right? And then think about the foods that we eat when we're stressed and overwhelmed and life is occurring as a real threat. We turn to the foods that remind our brain of that most nourishing, nurturing, safest place in the universe, a mother's breast. Why? Because milk is probably one of the only places, there's a couple of fruits, but one of the only places where you see sugar and fat together in nature. You see protein and fat together. You see protein and carbs together, like in legumes, et cetera. But rarely do you see sugar and fat together. We put them together in the form of cheese on bread and, you know, all that sort of stuff, right? We weaned off the breast for those that were breastfed or off the bottle, and they kept feeding us dairy and bastardizations of that nutrient combination, everything from chocolate to ice cream to savory versions like deep-fried potato. And so when we're stressed and overwhelmed, and that's almost all the time for people who these days. So we turn, it's nurture feeding. You turn to those foods that temporarily remind your brain of a safe place, but then we're shooting ourselves in the foot because then that's causing inflammation in our body, weight gain, et cetera. People hate themselves. They wake up in the morning with really crappy conversations in their head about who they are. And when they look at themselves in the mirror and you don't get to wear the clothes that you really want to wear, and then you try and tie your shoelaces up and you can't because you stomachs in the way. And this is, this is how people start their day. And then, and then they're on the way to educate the next generation of how to be in the future, you know, and not to be overly harsh, but geez, our teenagers are just killing themselves because they're looking at us as a picture of what possibly the future might look like. And I'm saying this is the answer or whatever, but you know, something to consider. 
And like you said earlier, we've got to wear the role models. And if we can't demonstrate it, then good luck to the next generation. That's like telling your kids not to lie whilst you cheat on your tax returns and, you know, all of this, you know. So, well, there's a lot to be responsible for. Well, of course. But guess what? You're responsible anyway, whether you think it, believe it, feel it, act on it, you're responsible anyway. So you may as well play that game in a way that leaves you with some power. This is deeply confronting and hard to hear and exciting because what I'm seeing from you and what I'm hearing from you is on the other side of this responsibility, on the other side of the discomfort, on the other side of the challenge, just sticking at it to being true to ourselves and having this self-integrity is power, is vitality, is energy. And freedom and peace of mind, a situation where you experience actually having a say in the matter of your own life. You're not at the effect of your parents or your culture or what's in your bank account or like you can actually start creating your life, not just being at the effect of whatever happened before. You know, cause and effect is just one model of the universe. But even if you looked at it from that model, it's like, why did or didn't you do something as well? Because of this, there's always assigning cause to something else. And why that? Well, because of that. And why this? And well, because I was born. And why did that happen? Well, there was a twinkle in my father's eye, right? So you can go all the way back to the big bang, if you believe in that. And then you know, and why did that happen? Well, the big crunch, or I'm not up to date with all the latest in that stuff. But if you, if you think about it, there's just literally been effect, 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 like dominoes, no cause. And the real opportunity of being human right now and distinguishing this and taking 100% responsibility, not this 50-50 proposition like, well, I need to be responsible for my part, but then the government needs to be responsible for their part or my spouse needs to be responsible for their part. So there's this 50-50 proposition. Well, that's like being in a boat saying to the other person on the boat, well, the hole is on your side of the boat. You handle it. Is it fair? And all of that conversation that, you know, it's not fair, I shouldn't have to. And why is it always me? And well, because it is. So what? Get on with it. That makes you the most powerful human being on the planet. Great. Good for you. Now let's get on with it. There's this, you know, I'm not going to look after my health and do what I need to do because really it's the government needs to change the policies around advertising damaging foods to, our, to vulnerable populations, to the kids. Well, yeah, okay, that, yeah, that too has to alter, but, you know, A, what are you doing about that? And if nothing, then, you know, what are you doing about your own health and well-being? If you're not willing to do anything, then stop complaining. Taking responsibility for our own well-being, knowing that we have personal power, we can influence the future, we can be that butterfly. The system is not going to change, it's us that needs to change. And the more individuals change, the more by nature the system will have to change. And that requires us to take that personal responsibility. So when it comes to taking personal responsibility, what are the first things that people can start to consider if we're listening to this conversation thinking, yeah, I get stuck in that confused and not quite sure and I'm kind of going to start next Monday but then Monday came and it sort of skipped it. 
how can we move towards taking greater responsibility for our personal being? Yeah, I think firstly, you got to understand that it's not your fault, right? And as an individual, you know, you can start flogging yourself. I grew up with a devout Roman Catholic mother, uh, Filipino, and, uh, you know, the self-flagellation, I mean, that happens too much anyway, right? So I don't think that's the appropriate pathway. I think that you got to start with distinguishing that how we've acted or not acted is a function of the condition in which we exist as human beings. Now, again, not to blame the condition, just got to, okay, there's a condition there. It's not my fault. So you got to kind of free yourself of the burden of, you know, that personal blame and fault and just see it as an opportunity to, you know, do something distinct, right? In service of not just your power and freedom, but in service of power and freedom being available for you and others. We've got to start with a safe space. There's got to be like this world of compassion for what it is to be human, to be a human being. And, you know, the innumerable stupidities of being a human being as well. So we've got to start with a, a great degree of compassion, but it's got to be ruthless compassion, not like this sympathetic view. And because what's the downstream effect of, of sympathy is softeners and we make it okay and then we settle. And then we don't go for what we really want. We go for what we think we might be able to achieve given the constraints and the circumstances, but then we sell out on what we really, really want. And then we never get to fulfill our visions or dreams and, or even give it a good crack and be totally fulfilled in our efforts in life. So there's got to be this ruthless compassion. And if you're a teacher or a coach, that's how you've got to be with the people that are entrusting you with their lives. You know, ruthless compassion is having a deep, deep, deep understanding of what another human being might be dealing with. And at the same time, you still relate to them as extraordinary. You still demand of them greatly. You encourage them to keep taking actions towards a mighty vision, a mighty one, one that's worthy of their lives. And if you can empower someone to take actions towards a mighty vision, the fulfillment of a vision that's worthy of their life, then you must relate to them as extraordinary, not just some throwaway. But that's the kind of listening that we need to provide those who entrust us with their development. And I think it's only in that listening that people get to step up and fulfill the true possibility of who they really are. Dean, you have given us so much to think about and hopefully inspired everybody to edge towards taking that courageous action to stick with the discomfort, to commit to something, to go all in, take that leap of faith. To wrap up this incredible conversation, I'd love to invite you to finish four sentences. Are you up for that? Sure, go for it. I am inspired by... I'm inspired by people who actually get on the court. They do what it takes to get out of the stands. The conversation in the stands, it has no impact on the game. Those who can generate the courage to get on the court and take actions and actually perform towards the fulfillment of their vision, that inspires me to no end. When life feels hard? When life feels hard, I acknowledge source, you know, especially when you take on a mighty task. It's easy to become burdened and overwhelmed by the magnitude of it all. So when life occurs is hard, you know, always acknowledging source, the source of my learnings, the source of my pathways, mostly the source of my life, which is my parents, especially my mother. You know, she's been gone for a few years now and I used to 
experience missing her every time I'd accomplish something or fulfill on something great. And it would leave me with that experience of missing her. And now I I took on a practice of acknowledging source, the source of my life and thank her for, you know, everything that I get to experience now. If it wasn't for her, I I wouldn't have this life. So, you know, interestingly enough, it now leaves me with experience of her presence wherever I go, sometimes much to my annoyance, but you know, it's, it's something to be thankful for. So yeah, take on the practice of acknowledging source. An underrated skill is? An underrated skill is to distinguish context. That's how you start to examine and look at what it takes to be responsible for whatever it is that you're dealing with. So if one is develops the ability and the skill linguistically to access context, I think you've got a superpower there that leaves you with some space to have a say rather than always reacting to circumstances or even your own internal state. And I'm looking forward to? I'm looking forward to a life and a future where people are no longer burdened by chronic disease and can actually fulfill on what really matters to them and people are actively at work on their legacy projects. You know, something that really contributes and makes a difference, not just to the next generation, but to many, many, many generations to come and such that those people in future generations can look back and experience being truly loved by those who took actions maybe hundreds of years earlier. Dean, thank you so much for sharing your insights and really challenging us to become that wise, courageous adult that we can all be. And thank you for being a guest on the School of Wellbeing podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for the conversation. It's been a great one. Thank you for listening to this episode and I look forward to returning with new episodes of the School of Wellbeing from Friday the 19th of January. Until then, take care and take deliberate action.